Artists Worldwide. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to another exciting episode of Global Brothers Podcast. This is the Dandy here with you. Got my man Big Heat in the building. What's cracking, brother? Peace. Peace, brother. Hey, man, you see my background today. I got, you know, I got the desert with me. You know what I mean? Gotta show people where we at. Yeah, that's messed up. I got an old MacBook, so I can't do that. <laughs> hey, man, step that game up, brother. Uh, we got a, uh, a dear friend, basically a young brother, a uh, little brother of mine on the show. And uh, we're going to get after it. Uh, this is a gentleman who um, we worked together, we played together, we, we spent a lot of time uh, growing up, and I'm happy that he's on our show. There's actually three people that I wanted to see on The Breakfast Club, and that's Leon Ford, Lamont Rucker, and Damon Young. And neither of the three, I don't think you've been on, Damon, right? I'm not. No, nah, I haven't been on, no. Right. And, you know, neither of the three have been on the show on The Breakfast Club. And I'm like, why not? Well, all three have been on Global Brothers Podcast. Yeah, boy. <laughs> well, I'm happy about that. Yeah, Welcome so cool. to the show, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And my, and my apologies to everyone. I was having some, some technical difficulties trying to get on. Um, my Zoom is acting... It's acting real black right now, so you know we have to fix that. Dig it. I dig I'll it. give him the I give him the hard and fast of it, Damon. For those for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, Damon Young is a writer, satirist, humorist, co-founder of VerySmartBrothers.com, and also the author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, which has become. Very, very, very relevant now, even though it was wonderful before, but we know the kind of time that we're living in and the people are really shouting out now. Matter of fact, um, just yesterday I read that uh, uh, books on being black <laughs> are like selling out right now, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. It's crazy. So, Damon, I don't know if you started to feel that. Yeah, I mean, my, my book right now on Amazon is out of stock. Um. Or the paperback, the paperback version out of stock. You can still get the hardcover, but the paperback out of stock right now. So um, I don't know how many they carry there. I don't know who their supplier is, but yeah, you can't you can't get it from Amazon right now. And now, and the thing is, if you're going to buy a book, I recommend you not get it from Amazon. Go to a local bookstore. Go to a black-owned bookstore. Bobby, Source Booksellers, um, any of the independent bookstores, even Barnes and Noble, ahead of getting a thing from Amazon, but. But again, though, um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's 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 uh, it's it's the trend now to have written a thing about blackness, yeah. and now everyone wants to have some sort of educational crash course on it, right? And so, whatever. Yeah, you know, um, trying to think, Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings, I forget which book she she wrote, but I heard her speak at Duquesne University, and she uh, said. In some way, she said, um, uh, urban education for white people is like a data plantation because what they do is they go in and they learn how to treat, you know, they learn the black experience and they learn how to educate uh, black people and be amongst black and be in black spaces or whatever. And then they leave and they write, they get their doctorate from that experience. Just today, I'm, I'm, hiring, I'm hiring teachers right now. And just today, um, I looked at a lady from Sweden. I think she lives in 
shoot, she lives somewhere else, but she's from Sweden. She lives somewhere else. And um, she uh, is writing, she did a dissertation on um, the African-American experience in America. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Like that is, that is definitely a, a, a trendy thing right now. Yeah, I mean, black, black studies is a field of study, right? But the thing is, when, when you make black studies a field of study, then that, that, then that implies that whiteness is a standard. Yeah. When white studies should also be a field of study. And the thing is, we all have PhDs in white studies. We, we know white people better than them, especially if you're from Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from America, from Pittsburgh, you know white people better than they know themselves. Yeah. And, and so I, whiteness being like the standard and being the, the baseline for every other culture is just a part of this conversation and a part of this, you know, this reckoning that's happening now. That, that needs to shift, that needs to change. Because there is a definite white culture, too. Their culture isn't standard culture, it is white culture. And, and it's funny, even thinking about, um, I watch a lot of comedy um, just to get you know, some, some tidbits on how to write and how to structure jokes and how to, how to build punchlines and the rhythm. And black comedy is almost considered its own thing. And that suggests that white comedy is the baseline. And when you think of white comedy, you think of like, and you think of a very specific type of comedy, you think of this like this New York upper middle class, Tony Effett, like Woody Allen, Jerry Seinfeld sort of thing. But that's a very specific brand of comedy too. Right. You know, and, and again, you know, yeah, black studies, yeah, they're white people can get their PhDs in black studies. And, and I, you know, I hope 10 years from now, there, there's niggas getting PhDs in white studies because white studies is an actual thing. You know, we need to study these motherfuckers. Right, right. Well, like you said, I, I've, I've echoed that and I've actually told some of my white colleagues, you know, when something goes down in the workspace or something like that and they're, they're alarmed that, or they're surprised that I know what's going on. And I'm like, well, yeah, I saw that coming because I have my PhD. I've, I've used that mm-hmm. phrase, I have my PhD, and like I, you know, I could see it coming from a mile away. You know? So it's almost like we know them better than they know themselves. Isn't um, yeah, isn't, uh, and the thing is, one thing I'll, I'll say really quickly, just about, just about black Americans specifically, I'm speaking of this in the black American context, you know, um, one of the, one, one of the, the, the more underrated, you know, negative aspects of white supremacy, is that it doesn't allow white people to actually be fully human. Um, doesn't allow people who practice that to develop empathy, to develop compassion, to develop perspective. And, and you know, if, if there's, you know, one of, one of the many benefits of, of being black, being black in America, is that you're able to be fully human. Mm. And you're able to be fully human in a way that people who practice oppression, people who, who subjugate, people who have bias, people who murder, don't. Hey, we jump right in, right, Dandy? I mean, this guy, <laughs> I wasn't yeah, expecting yeah. right? Yeah. Um, let's, let's get Dane to uh, go back. I was, you know, I was, I feel like I was along for the ride, right? So, you know, I kind of was there with the guy and watched him and everything. Um, I can even go back to uh, 
probably one of our first interactions was down probably Risenstein on the court, you know, on the basketball court with Dame. So was it probably yeah, yeah, we probably don't need to go back that far. But let's at least go back to when you decided or when you realized you had a knack or a passion or a gift even to start doing what you're doing. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer just because I, writing had always been a thing. Like, um, you know, so I, went to, I went to college basketball scholarship, you know, and, and that's how me and Heath knew, that's how we met each other through Hoopin. You know, um, where he was, you know, one of the older guys and I was one of the young guys. So I actually didn't stand this motherfucker at first, but, mm-hmm. you know, we, that's, what I, was, that's what I was getting. Um, and you talk a lot of shit. You still do talk a lot of shit, but you talk a lot of shit then. And I'm like, who is this? I knew who you were, too. And I was like, who? Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> I, even in college, I was into writing then. Um, I went to school in the late 90s, early aughts. And if you remember that time, that was when Death Poetry and like the Love Jones era was the zeitgeist um, kind of created, was, this, was, the, was, was the, I guess, the mood of the whole culture right then. Um, and I was a part of that. Um, I wrote really terrible poetry. For the same reason that, you know, a lot of young men write really terrible poetry to impress girls. And from that, I started writing essays. I eventually became the editor of the school newspaper there. And even after I graduated and I, and I was a substitute teacher and I had a couple other jobs, I continued writing throughout. I continued writing. I had a blog. I would, I would write little poems. I would put them in a, um, this one local publication in Pittsburgh called Soul Pit. would publish my work. Um, and, and then I got a job at Duquesne University. Um, and while I was at Duquesne University, I started a blog, Very Smart Brothers. And I started it with a friend of mine who had also had a blog and we decided to come together and blog. And so I got that job in 2008, got laid off in 2009. The whole program shut down. I remember. Yeah. And, um, I was on unemployment for a while, and this was during a recession where you could be on long-term unemployment. And I thought to myself, "It's like, you know what? Do I want to keep? Do I want to keep working these education-related jobs that you know where things are shutting down in eighteen months, or funding is 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 leaving, or you know, or or, or whatever? Or do I want to actually see if I could write for a living?" if I could make a living doing this thing that I love doing. So in around 2010 was probably the first year that I wrote full time. And, and the thing is, you know, and, I, and, I, and I always tell people this, is that Dang, this doesn't... Dang, who did you write for? Full-time. At the time I was just writing, um, I just had my blog. I had very smart brothers. And then I started writing for some, some smaller um, digital publications. There was Clutch Magazine. Um, then there was Man of Noir. And then I started writing for Ebony. I got a job um, with Ebony in, in 2011. Late 2011, started 2012. But, um, but just to, to rewind backwards for a second, what I was saying is that 
when people ask me about, okay, how did I end up doing what I'm doing for a living? I always tell them that I was, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have done this if I didn't get fired or if I didn't get laid off. Right. If that job didn't end, then maybe I continue on in academia in some capacity. But I, um, I needed to almost be, it's like you learn how to swim and someone just tosses you in a deep end. Like I needed that to happen for me to, to pursue this dream that I'd had for over a decade. And even living in Pittsburgh, you know, definitely, definitely helped that process because the first few years I did this, I wasn't making any money. But, you know, one, one benefit of living in the city that I live in is that you can eat by on a living without making a whole lot of money. And so I did that for a few years and then finally got to the point, you know, and the blog kept growing, got more attention. Then I got a job at GQ um, as a columnist there. Then I got a book deal and then the blog got acquired by, um, by I guess, Moda Media Group. And then things just kind of changed drastically. And that's, and that, the acquisition and the book deal all has happened in like the last four years. Right. So desperation, like desperation is a huge part of my story. Like I, I'm, I, I'm not going to, I can't pretend that it's not because that would be a lie. Desperation and, and needing this to work. Because I was like, you know, what, what else am I going to do? I need this to work. You know, you remember playing basketball, you know, coaches, you know, camps, everybody would say, uh, what is it? Luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? Uh -huh. um, hearing you speak, I was like, well, wow, but you were prepared for that opportunity, though. Like once the big, you know, once you start making the money, you were still, uh, I guess, just well-groomed, well-prepared for writing, you know, doing your own thing on your own blog and, and for, for other, you know, smaller uh, media outlets so i think mm -hmm. you know you were you were at least ready you didn't get thrown into a fire and burn. yeah I, I i was ready and also you know and i, I keep it 100 i got better like like okay so when i first started my first start very smart brothers and i it started you know to get some get some traction get some momentum i reached out to like slate and the atlantic and a couple other digital publications i still have those emails too just wanting to hey you know if you have any columnist thing open or do you want this pitch or blah 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 and i all of those ideas you know all those pitches or emails or whatever got rejected or unanswered or people like hey you know we like you but i don't know if you're a great fit for this and at the time i felt like you know what they just don't believe in me i'm from i'm, I'm you know i'm just this pittsburgh nigga with a blog this is some classism, some elitism happening. And, and, then, and I'm not going to say that that's not a part of it, too. But I also needed to get better. I also needed to work on my craft and get better to get to a point where I could do this for a living right. and not just run my own blog. Right. And, so, and, and that's, a, that's another part of, I guess, the story that people neglect to, to, to mention sometimes when they talk about their failures. And the failures is uh, is centered in this lack of opportunity, and and sometimes the lack of opportunity is there, but sometimes you also need to pivot. You also need to put your nose down, put your head down, work, and get better at your craft. And then once you get better, then people will start. Hey, do you instead of you instead of you pitching, people will pitch you. 
Right. Like, hey, do you want to be a part of this thing? Hey, I'll create this job for you. Right. I've heard. I've heard you. Um. Well, I've read that you said uh, that you have post brokenness disorder. <laughs> yeah. When, yeah. When, when you're when you when you become successful and uh, in demand, you know, as you say, with like you know people coming to you with opportunities, aren't you a bit beyond that though as well? No. 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 I in in. The term for it is P, uh, PTSD, um, post-traumatic brokenness uh, disorder. Um, and, okay, this tells a story really quickly. 2000 and, I think, 2013. Um, you know, and this is, I had already started writing full-time. I was working at Ebony Magazine. Um, I was a contributing editor there. And... Ebony would be kind of funny with paying people on time. Okay. Ebony? And, Ebony? Really? Yeah, yes, 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 Ebony. Um, and a, a couple delayed, you, you get a couple delayed paychecks that starts like a, a snowball effect where it's like, okay, well, you start to think about, okay, what can I pay that they're not going to shut? What, what can I let go that they're not going to shut off immediately? And what do I need to pay immediately? So it's like, okay, I need to pay my cable, my internet immediately because I need that to work. I need to pay my rent immediately because I need that to have a place. Car insurance, yeah, because they will come and get your car. You can't be riding dirty in, in, in Pittsburgh. But car payment, that's something that if you're, if you're like a month or two late, they will not just come and get your car. Like, they will give you a little bit of time if you're, like, a month or two late. But a month or two ended up being two or three. And I'm ignoring calls. I'm ignoring. I'm not there calling me. I'm just not picking up the phone. I'm not answering the, the letters, whatever. And then I come outside one day, and a car is gone. And I think that it's I, – I, my immediate thought is that someone stole it. And so I call the police to report, you know uh, – a robbery and they're like nigga <laughs> nobody steal your car man <laughs> you need to pay your fucking bills they didn't say that but I could hear I could hear it. it it was it was a black operator that picked up too and I could hear it <laughs> in her phone like you broke Nick and um so I eventually ended up getting that back I had to borrow some money from some friends I, I joined this church just to belong to the church's credit union um and I did all this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. Um, and again, that happened in 2013. But I still feel the remnants of that. Like if I'm just sitting home doing this and you hear that really distinct beep, beep, beep of a large truck backing up in the street, my fight or flight begins to engage. And I start to think, oh, is someone coming to get my, get my car again? And my car is paid for. Right. It's in a garage. It's literally in a garage. Well, it's not in a garage right now, but I have a garage. The car is paid for. And I still have that, that anxiety in me. And, and the thing is, it's like, I don't, I think it's helpful for me because that, that sort of anxiety I guess can help to continue to fuel ambition where I don't, I'm never going to forget 
where I, where I just was 10 years ago, six years ago. And also where I could be like that, and, you know, in America. So I'm not, you know, I, I, I've, I've had some, I've had, you know, some really great successes over the past few years, but none of that is going to make me forget or make, make me extract those memories. And also too, you know, if I, I'm, I don't come from money, so it's not like, you know, I'm just joining the rest of my family and the rest of my sphere of influence, you know, at a certain financial level. Like right now I'm, you know, I'm paying phone bills for people that don't live here. Mm-hmm. I'm helping out with rent. I'm paying tuition, yeah. you know, and, 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 and again, because, you know, and, and that's the, that's the status for a lot of black people in America, where if we've reached a certain point, you know, financially, maybe it's, it's still kind of tenuous because no one, most of the people around you aren't necessarily there yet. And there are multiple, you know, factors to cause of that white supremacy is a motherfucker. But the reality is that I don't feel comfortable, even if I've been able to um, afford certain comforts. And you're not taking it for granted. Um, and that, uh, that brings me to the, uh, to the title the original title of your book. Um, and, uh, and when I heard it, um, I thought it was, I thought it was quite poetic. It was quite poetic and everyone else is going to hear it in a second, but I want to, I want to set it up with this. So I looked up the second word in the dictionary. I won't tell y'all what the word is because I want, because I want Damon to break it down. I'll just tell you the definition of what I looked up. Um, now this is part of his original title and it says a relatively mild mental illness that is not caused by organic disease involving symptoms of stress, depression, anxiety, obsessive behavior, hypochondria, but not a radical loss of touch with reality. What was the original title of your book? Okay, so the original title was Nigga Neurosis. Wow. I, I want to make sure I enunciate that the way it's supposed to be enunciated because I, I have a tendency to slur and I've repeated that a few times and I've repeated that title a few times in like interviews or whatever. And then you see this transcript of the interview and it says nigga in the roses. And I'm like, no, I did not say that. It's nigga in the roses. It's not nigga in the roses. That's, I think that's like a Tupac poem. But um, yeah, the original title was nigga neurosis. And this is a, this is a, um, a term that I, that I kind of coined a few years ago that encapsulates the state of being where you're wondering, you're questioning how your blackness may have impacted the way people treat you. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and again, it's, it's a wide spectrum of behaviors and it could be something as innocuous and, and, and harmless as you're out at a restaurant getting breakfast, you get pancakes, bacon, whatever. The server asks if you want hot sauce. And it's like, Really? I'm, I'm, you think I'm putting hot sauce on bacon? Oh, yeah, I'm putting hot sauce on pancakes. <laughs> Where I, I, I do syrup just like everyone else. <laughs> Where do you do that? <laughs> so there's that on one end, and then on a more dangerous end, on a more real end, is you're driving around and you notice you look in the rear view and you see a police car behind you, and you're not certain why they're following you. Maybe you just happen to be going the same direction. Maybe 
there's a there's so many maybes. But one of those maybes is that maybe I'm being followed because I'm black. Maybe I'm being treated this way because I'm black. And then there's a chapter in a book that 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 talks about it in in, in the realest way, where I talk about my mom and how my mom my mom passed of uh, lung cancer in 2013, and she passed a year after she was diagnosed with cancer, and um, in the years the years before she was diagnosed, she would go to the doctor, back pain, chest pain, headaches. And they would give her Advil, tell her to work out more, drink more water, take less Advil. And we now know that she had the symptoms. The, the, the thing that she was complaining about was the cancer that was growing inside of her. And can't help but wonder if she, if she were like a white woman with those same symptoms, would they have treated her, would they have taken her pain more seriously? And, 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 and where neurosis exists is that you're never, you're never 100% sure. Like you could be 99% certain, but you're never completely 100% sure. And, and, and that, that little bit of gap between what you, what you feel and that tiny smidgen of possibility that what you feel is not reality, that's where the neurosis exists. You know, as, a, as, a, um, as, you, as you spoke there, like, I kind of felt like it started off in like somewhat of like a humorous kind of way. And then mm-hmm. there's like this just like very like um, painful thing in your voice as well. And when I think about satire, um, I really do think about it in that kind of way. And uh, as Heath and I prepared for this uh, for this feature, like you know, uh, you know, I asked him like, you know, what is you know what does Damon want his title to be? Then he told me like, you know, satirist, humorist, writer. I'm like, well, why humorist and a satirist? I was thinking, but like, I completely understand like just by hearing you tell that story like it's 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 like it's like a duality um you know in a sense i don't know if you've been yeah. doing before well you know well i appreciate you saying that and um it, it's funny because <clears throat> i was just complaining i was just actually complaining to a friend about this where okay so there's all this shit happening in, in the united states and in the world right now and my my book is on all these lists of like anti-racism books and books you need to buy to understand a pot experience or whatever and I, I've been fortunate enough to get some really good reviews and, you know, major publications of the book and, you know, all types of, you know, support and, and, and whatever. But very often when I would see, when I would read some of these reviews, it, it felt like, and these are some of the good ones, it felt like they were reading a completely different book. Um, and my man, K.S.A. Lehman, who wrote an amazing memoir, Heavy, I remember before I published my book, he said, you know, be aware of those, be aware of those good reviews. Hmm. And I didn't really get what he meant when he said that until I actually got some of them. And some of those reviews just really zeroed in on some of the pain and some of the trauma or whatever that, that's in my work, you know, and some of the deeper things that I talk about 
when humor is, my book is basically a humor book, but it's almost like some white people, when they, when they, when they read a, a work from a black person or when they engage in any sort of content from a black person, it's either, okay, this is, this is Martin Lawrence, so it's gonna be funny. This is Kevin Hart, so it's gonna be funny. Or this is, I don't know, this is Ibram Kendi and it's gonna be like completely serious. And they can't get that sometimes there's a fusion. That sometimes, you know, people are gonna talk about maybe darker themes, but use their natural humor, their natural way of observing things as a way to tell that story. And again, that the humor part is, again, that's, that's a foundational part of, of, my, of my story, of my work, of the way I see the world. But there are, you, you can read some of these reviews and it's like, yo, it, it's a 500 word long review and not once did it say anything about anything being funny or anything, you know, being, you know, being, or any satire. Um, and again, that's just, that's one of those, that's, that's one of those, I guess, I, I'm not going to call it a microaggression, but it's more of like a latent effect of, of racism where it, it constricts humanity and it doesn't allow people to see kind of the full person um, or the full work. Because, um, you know, there are, there are white authors who talk about dark things but do it in a funny way. David Sedaris is, person, is a person who comes to mind immediately and everyone recognizes him as a humorist. Even as he's talking about suicide or, or, or depression or, or all of this, he's still recognized as that. But for someone like me, I get kind of lumped into the, the, the academics and the activists, and I'm neither of those things. I have some academic leanings in my work. I have some activist leanings in my work, but I'm neither, I'm neither of those things. But because I'm black and because I write about blackness and I write about race, I'm kind of thrown into that pile. Well, your boy, your boy uh, I'd say probably three years ago, thought you would you lean or assumed that you would lean that far and i had to learn that you weren't either so there's 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 there's, there's black people and there's people that know you and there's people mm -hmm. black people that view you that expected you to go that way and i wondered i was like what's up with them but then i had to keep reading and i had to get real deep and i was like oh he's not in that lane that's not his that's not the lane he's in meanwhile i assumed yeah. i assumed you were yeah, and, 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 and yeah, you're right. It, it's not just white people who do that. You know, we, we sometimes have a tendency to box ourselves into these, you know, these tight little corners too. Um, and, and I think that when people, I, I try to let people know before they encounter my work. Like when I, sometime today, I, I've gotten a lot of new followers on Instagram and Twitter because of all these anti-racism book lists I'm on now. And I'm going to let people know like, hey, if you read, I want you to buy my book. But if you do, don't expect stand from the beginning. Don't expect between the world and me. It's not. It's it's not that at all. It's not that. So I don't. I don't want you to have some sort of whiplash um, when you're reading it because again, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not Kese. I'm not Tanahisi. I'm not Ibram. 
I'm not Brittany Cooper. I'm not Imani Perry, Michelle Alexander. I don't. That's not my. That's not my lane. Right. And do you and do you feel the need to to uh, to kind of explain um, or like define exactly what you do? Whereas like you have to first tell someone, listen, I'm not a comic. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not an activist. I'm a satirist, humorist, and writer. Um. Sometimes. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I just. I just exist and, and I let people figure that out for themselves. Yeah, yeah, because I, yeah, I feel that's 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 what you should do. You should just exist. Yeah, yeah. Like like, if I'm in front of people talking, then people are going to figure that out once once I once they hear me for five minutes. It's like, oh, okay. Um, but but I do think if people are expecting a certain, if people are, are if if a critical mass of people have a certain expectation, right, then maybe I'll get in front of it. And say, hey, just to let you know, yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's a lot more, diff- it's a lot, I guess, harder to communicate that online. Like when someone isn't familiar with your work, and you're on all these like really serious race book lists, and I think my book is a serious book too. I know my book is a serious book too, but it's just told in a different way. And so, in a, in a circumstance like that, then. Yeah, maybe I'll get out and I'll explain, like, hey, thank you for your support, but I'm just letting you know. It's like you're, it's almost like going to see like a Tarantino movie, you know, and that's like the first thing that came to mind off the top of my head, where his movies shift in tone from scene to scene, where he'll have some farce mm-hmm. in one scene and then like the most dramatic, tragic shit, tense shit you've ever seen in the next scene sometimes it's in the same scene right and you know i just yeah and we're able to do that shit too dame are, are you a unicorn in your profession as far as your demographic nah, you I, I don't think so i mean there, there are people who are humorous who who talk about race who fuse race and culture and observation and 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 and, and also their own personal so consciousnesses and anxieties and, and whatever in their work. Um, I, I believe that I'm the best at it, though. So I'll, I'll say that. I'm not, I'm not even going to be fake modest. <laughs> I have to get out. I have to kind of get out of that because people give me a compliment and I'm, you know, I'm like, I don't know. But I believe I'm the best at this particular thing yeah. in terms of writing. But there are people like Paul Beatty who is a tremendous satirist, but he does more um, fiction. Um, there are also great humor writers who aren't writing books, who are writing on TV shows, who are you know, writing plays, who are writing movies, things of that nature. So, um, but, but in terms yeah. of this, what I do, I think I'm the best at it. Have you been, have you been approached in regards to like, uh, you know, the on-screen, the, what is it called? The, um playwrights or anything like that? Um, I've, I've had people approach me, see if I was interested in writing a play um, or contributing to their, to their play, and I, I, that's not where my interests are. Um, there are some TV opportunities that I can't, that haven't been announced yet, that, yeah. um, that are in the works, though. Um, so, so, yeah. That's great. So let's talk about three niggas. Uh, one of them, well, maybe two of them, maybe maybe three of them are in the room right now. 
Um, you have a chapter, I believe it's chapter seven, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's chapter seven or eight, yeah. So, yeah, it's called three. Take us through that. Uh, I'm, um, I'm, uh, that's, you know, one of the chapters that I'm, uh, I guess, I'm attached to in some way. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> three, three niggas. Everybody about that chapter. Three niggas. <laughs> there, there are at least two, two niggas that were in this, that, that, that I know, I see you, Heath, and my man Brian is also, I think he's still here. Um, so, we're at, we're at Heath's watching, I think, NBA playoff games or something. There's like, there's like 12, 15 of us just kicking it, playing spades, eating, talking shit, ripping on each other, you know, just you know, doing what, what niggas do when you get together. It's, 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 a, it's a good night. And one of the guys there was white. Okay. And he's a guy that we all, because we're all ball players. Everyone in, everyone in this room was a basketball player. I think mostly everyone was a ball. There might have been some people you knew from teaching or whatever, but the majority of the people in that room were ball players at that in the house. And so the night continues, and you know, people have had something to drink, some people have smoked, whatever. And we're sitting around telling stories about women or about like crazy situations that you were in that had to do with a woman or had to do with you trying to get with a woman or whatever. And so Jeremy. I said his name. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to say his name, but I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's the white guy. He's the white guy. Um, starts telling this story about this time where he was messing with some some black woman who lived in the projects. And, you know, whatever happens at night, blah, whatever. And then in the morning, he gets up and he sees two people. They get up, his girl sees two people sitting on his car and comes and tells him about it. He's still in bed. And so this is him, Jeremy, telling the story to us. So yeah, you know, blase, blase, you know, whatever. And then, you know, get up the next morning, right? And my girl gets up and is like, yo, Jay, there's two niggas sitting on your car. And I look out the window, and like, lo and behold, there are two niggas sitting on my car. <laughs> and, he, and he continues the story, right? <laughs> and everybody, he everyone, just story like, everybody quiet. Everybody just like, <laughs> did, did he, did, did he just say what we think? Because we were just in shock. It wasn't like I, I joke in the book that, you know, I, I take it, I, I go through like some scenarios, and scenario one is that we like set him on fire and, <laughs> and lynch him or something. But we were, the reality was that we were in shock because it was so nonchalant. He said it in a way that lets you know, oh, he's definitely said this before because he had the rhythm right. He used, he had the conjugation right. He used it the exact right way. He enunciated, he used it the way the rest of the niggas in the room would have used it. And then after a few seconds, I remember Brian B. Curl was like, yo, in the story, story time's over, story time's over, in the story, in the story, in the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's done. 
<laughs> and then, you know, people, and then and at that point, everyone's like, yo. And then he realized what he did, and then he started like, you know, I'm so sorry, my bad, I'm so sorry, it's whatever. So I tell that story in this chapter as like an introduction to, um, uh, I guess, a, like a breakdown, a deconstruction of that word and why I use it and why white people can't. Um, and, and again, I use that story just to introduce this, this larger theme about ownership, about, you know, about earning a thing. And my rationale for using that word, and it's a word that we don't even have a consensus on because there are some of us. Dang, put a pin in that real quick because we're going to go there. We're going to go there about the N-word. But what I want to tell the group is our brother, literally our brother, Brian Carroll, is in the room. Once again, he's in Luxembourg, uh, been been abroad for a long time uh, with his family. You don't want to see him standing up. Uh, He's about (laughs) 6'8". (laughs) <laughs> so when it, when this when the situation went down just to give you a little more context i coached jeremy at a, uni- a local university and he used to use the word and get in trouble on campus so me and the head coach at the time used to have i didn't know that i didn't know there was like a history okay they, yeah, I figured that. They would come back to maybe like practice or study hall and say, hey, man, we about to F him up. He keeps using the word. And it was in the same spaces where it would be a dorm room, dorm room full of guys, possibly alcohol, and that's when he, it would come out. Well, he was an adult at the time with us, right? And he, he yeah. did the exact same thing. He didn't learn his lesson. As a matter of fact, I believe he got into a fight on campus about the same. So Brian Carroll, I watched everybody when it went down. I was already aware of Jeremy can do that and slip up. He probably wouldn't have been invited if I would have understood group dynamics, right? So I watched Brian and was like, man, he's about to, Brian's about to go. Like, he, this dude's about to go in my house. Like, I'm looking at my furniture right now, right? So, uh, but Brian kept his cool, but you did check him, Brian. I mean, he checked him hard. So I remember that part. <laughs> so, Dandy, uh, let's transition because I want to stay, well, not even transition. I want to stay with the use of the N-word. Uh, okay. So let's get to that as well. Yeah, but, you know, as I was saying, you know, it's a, it's a word that there's not even consensus among us. No. about whether or not to use it. There are black people, and there are black people who have good rationales. You're like, you know what? I, this is a word that has been used to subjugate, used to, to hate, used to control, and I just don't want that word. I just don't see the value in, in reappropriating that word. And, and that's a, I, I'm not going to argue with people who feel that way. Like, if, if that's you, then, you know, if we're in conversation, I'm not going to use that word with you. It's, it's that simple, it, and it's that easy. It's like you know what? Yeah, I'll respect that for you, but for me, that word has always been a word of community, a word of love. I, I would hear my parent, like I'd be upstairs at night pretending to be asleep, and I would hear my parents downstairs using it with each other, 
And I remember thinking to myself, you know, dreaming about meeting a woman one day that I could nigga banter with the way my parents were ba- were talking to each other. You know, when I grew up on basketball courts, you know, the court behind Penley, the Penley courts, the courts behind Peabody High School, um, Mellon Park, Rosenstein. And, you know, I got that little nigga. Oh, that's my nigga. That's my nigga D. Um, that's that little nigga. And, and again, it was all, at that point, it was all love. Same thing when I would be in Newcastle, which is a city about an hour north of Pittsburgh, and a lot of my family's from there. And I would spend a lot of time there in the summertime, and my uncles and whatever would be there, and they would use it with each other, and they would use it with me. And again, that word has always been a word of community. And not just a word of community, a word of honesty. Because it's a word that you use when you are cutting through like all that, all your degrees and your status and your money, all that shit don't matter. It's like, nigga, come on. It, it's a word that kind of cuts to the meat of you, cuts to the bone of you. And for me, that word has always been that. And I use it, it it's in my book a lot. <laughs> like I know, you know, there are websites you can go and see how many times fuck has been used in like Goodfellas or or whatever. There should be like a, a nigga counter in my because there there's there are probably at least two hundred instances of me using that word in a book. Maybe a hundred. I don't know. That's still a lot though for a three hundred page book. Have you got um, uh, have you gotten backlash or like you know strong critiques by maybe even some of your elders, some of your mentors, or you know, just some um, theme writers? Strong critiques. I won't say strong critiques, but I've gotten critiques. Like I've, um, like I've done, you know, when my book came out and I did a tour um, there when I was in Brooklyn and also when I was in DC, um, an older person in the crowd, um, when it became like the Q&A time, brought that up and brought up how uncomfortable they were with me using that word. And I, and I told them the same thing that I'm telling, that I'm telling everyone here where it's, um, you know, I treated, I kind of treated the same way you would treat a profanity where, you know, you're not going to be in your grandma's house at this, you know, whatever. But if you're talking to people that you're familiar with, or if you're a creative and you're creating work, then I use all the words at my disposal. And so if you're going to engage with my work, you're going to have to engage with that. That's right. just, that's just reality. Um, and there are people who I've seen like some reviews of my book where it's almost like, and these are reviews that very often come from white people. It's like, I, I'm warning you, he uses a certain word and it's an uncomfortable word and, you know, he uses it and you're just going to have to deal with it. And, and so there, there is that too. But I haven't, there hasn't been like a, this work is trash because this word is used. I haven't, I haven't received any of that. Like most people, you know, that, I, that, I've, that I've seen, that I've read, if they've critiqued it, it's been more of like, a, he uses this uncomfortable word, maybe a little bit too much, but it doesn't really take away from the rest of the work. Yeah, you know, the context, um, of course, you know, that, that's, that's everything, right? Mm-hmm. But, but um, I remember it was either my mom or Howard Bullard, you know, who you know, my high school coach, Mm-hmm. We had a discussion on it and a debate about the word. And I've had this debate with a couple other elders, you know, older people who, you know, maybe baby boomers or whatever. And 
I had to say to them or check them and say, well, when I was younger, Eddie Murphy, Raw, uh, Moms Mabley, Red Fox, y'all were laughing. Like you guys were cracking up laughing at nigga, please, you know? <laughs> so um, the fact that we, it actually was handed to us and, you know, it got morphed into media and, uh, you know, everywhere, hip hop, you know, culture, urban black culture, um, they've gotten more conservative, you know, but way yeah. back in their in in Woodstock era. <laughs> and that makes sense though, too. I mean, that, that, that like, I, I, I am not going to, I'm you not, know, not going to minimize. Real quick, James, I'm sorry. George Jefferson used it. And there was a laugh track behind it on the Jeffersons. Yeah, like I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna minimize that feeling of someone who, who grew up in an era that that was a lot more dangerous than the era we grew up in. Like that, and that's just that's just reality where, you know, things aren't great, but they are better than they were for us in the '60s. That's just in the, in the '50s and '60s. That's just the reality. And so, for someone who grew up in that era, and you and may have heard that word you know, in a negative manner towards them repeatedly. And then to kind of the culture moves, decades pass, and now it's everywhere. It's in all the music. It's in all of the TV, not just comedy, not just stand-up acts. It's in, it's in sitcoms, family sitcoms. Definitely. And to go from that to that, and now seeing some white people feeling like they have some, not just white people, but non-black people. Because there are other, you know, there are other, like I, when I was in school in New York, that was the first time hearing Latinos say nigga. And they said it the way, and these, some of these Latinos looked white. Like they looked like blonde hair, blue-eyed white people, but they were Puerto Rican and they felt like they could say it too. And so I, 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 I get someone who's like 67 years old and witnesses that. And it's like, you know what? I, I, I kind of want us to bring us back now. Like we, we put it out there for a little bit, but now it's getting a little bit out of control. So I, I get it. I don't agree, but I, I, I get it. Yeah. For someone to ask, ask a um, uh, uh, differentiating question. I mean, I know it sounds pretty obvious to us, but just like the pronunciation of it, as well as I would add to what she's asking in terms of the context of usage. Because yeah. for me, uh, I don't really think, like I don't really dwell too hard on it as an age thing, because uh, I never really used it heavy, even when I was a kid, but that's because my parents were like, we'll fuck you up. Mm-hmm. Like you got so many better words to use, you've got a big vocabulary. Use it, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I don't correct other people that are us about using it. Um, I don't know if you'd consider that aiding and abetting or whatever. But again, well, it, like you I'm know, it's about context as well. Um, I just want to just want to finish what 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 she's asking. Okay. She, she says, "Is it is it okay to say nigga a e r?" Or Negro. I mean, we. I don't. 
Negro is kind of one of those words that kind of that has aged out of of the lexicon. Where I don't, I mean, people maybe use that as a substitute for nigga when they're saying Negro, but I it's not a word that is that I feel is is still relevant in that way. Um, and it's a substitute for thing, but it's a PG thirteen substitute, and it's like even if you say Negro. You're still hearing nigga, so so just say nigga. It's like when people it's like when people say ninja, or when people instead of saying fuck they say fudge. It's like I you're saying this, but I'm still hearing the so it's still the exact same effect. So just say it because yeah, this trying to trying to you know censor yourself. You're you're not censoring me because I'm hearing what you're saying. Um, so I wanted to say this really quickly, and we're talking about context. So I used to be a um, I used to be a teacher at, at Wilkinsburg. Um, Heath at the time was the dean of students there, and I was a sub. Then I had my own classroom, and then I was a sub again. And during the time that I had my own classroom, I would write students up for saying "nigga" in class because at that point it was so ubiquitous. It was like, and this is ninth grade English. And with some of the kids, it was nigga this, nigga that, nigga this, nigga that. And so I told them, like, if you keep doing this, I'm going to write you up and send you. To, and I told Keith I was going to do this. And the thing is, after doing this for about a month, what started happening is that they would still use it sometimes, but you would find them kind of editing themselves and recognizing, like, oh, my, my bad, Mr. Young. And so... The point of that story is that there's a there's a place for it, and maybe an English classroom when you're in ninth grade isn't that place. But a, a forty year old writing a book, yeah, you use it all you want. Or or those same kids, if they a lot of them recorded rap music or whatever and would freestyle lunchtime, yeah, use it use it then too. But if you're in class right now, then I would prefer that you didn't, even though I even though I use it too. And I'm going to show you some deaf poetry. I'm going to show you some, some rap lyrics in our poetry section so you could figure out the, the metaphors and assemblies and the onomatopoeia and all that stuff in there. And it's going to have that word. Yeah, it's, 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 hard, it's, hard, it's hard not to be a hypocrite um, in, some, in some instances. And I find myself uh, within that as well because, I mean, some of my favorite lyricists or comedians, you know, Dave Chappelle, Eddie Murphy, um, you know, et cetera. And like, you know, lyricist wise, like obviously throw the word around. Like, it's like just saying hello. So, um, for me, like, yeah, to like, it's like take offense with someone else saying, I'm just like, well, you know, I listen to the stuff though. Um, but I would say, well, but I'm saying like, like, you know, like long, like long lines, what, what you were saying of, uh, time and place, you know, it's like mm -hmm. you have other things to say. So it's one thing if it's like, that's all that comes out of your mouth and that's all that you say. It's another thing if you use it for effect. And I feel like what you're saying is you use it for effect within the book. Yeah. And, and I, yes, that's, that's definitely true. Um, or at least that's what I tend to do. And also, I don't believe that that's hypocrisy. Okay. Because as you were saying, you know, context matters. Right? Context and, and place and status and situ. All, that's, all that stuff matters. It matters who you're talking to. It matters... Like, for instance, if I, I've never met either of the Obamas, but 
if Barack Obama came up to me and was like, what's up, my nigga? I would, what's up, what's up, my nigga? Yeah, what's up, my nigga B? You know, what's good? Whatever. Would I, would I approach Michelle that way? Hell no. You know, and, and, it, and it's not always even just a, just like a distinction between like a male, female, or cisgender, male, cisgender, female sort of thing. It's a, it's just, again, context matters. Right. And I even, I even say in that chapter that it's a word that suggests a familiarity. And as much as I use it, if someone that I've never met before comes up to me and it's like, yo, what's up, my nigga? I don't, I don't, you don't know me like that. <laughs> you don't even know my name right now. I, like it's, and, and so, yeah, context and situation matters. So with, do you feel like you know, so do you feel like you know Barack better than you know Michelle? <laughs> what <are> you <laughs> no, but I'm, but I'm just saying, if, if Familiar, he approaches familiarity. me, I'll return her energy, but if she hasn't approached me that way, then I'm not going to give that energy. Right. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. Um, so, so like speaking of that and in terms of like who you're talking to, familiarity, who is your audience? Um, the reason why I ask you that is because um, uh, like I've got, I've got an inclination of who you're speaking to, like, like within your writing as well as on your blog. Um, and then uh, I wanted to bring up this line as well with that for you to answer this together. Um, it's just a saying, I, I was trying to find who said it first, but I couldn't find it. It's a saying, if you want to hide something from a black person, hide it in a book. So then I go back to who is your audience? <laughs> Good one, right? <laughs> weighted, weighted question. Um, my audience is me. That's, that's, my, that's my primary target audience. I write things that I want to read. I write the things that would entertain me. I write things that would make me laugh. I write the things that I want to exist in the world, that I want to exist in the world. I write the things that I wish that a 15 or 25 year old me would have read, um, could have read, um, a 30 year old me, shit. Um, and so that's, that's my primary audience. And then I extrapolate out, I extrapolate out and then it's us, you know, I'm writing, I'm writing for us, you know, in my book, I don't like explain things. I write things. I, I, you, in, I'll just use this example. I, I write about Pittsburgh a lot in a book. I'm from Pittsburgh. I still live in Pittsburgh. And that's mentioned very often in, in like reviews and when people talk about the book, about how it's a very Pittsburgh book. And that was intentional because I'm, I'm used to consuming art that is very Atlanta or very Harlem or very Brooklyn or very Chicago where these, you know, this art that you know, that it's also about a place and it's not, and it's not self-conscious about being about that place. So why not create a black book that's also a Pittsburgh book too, that also references things and doesn't explain them. Like I'll reference Kennywood and I'm not going to explain to you that it's an amusement park. I'm just going to reference Kennywood and you need to use your context clues to understand where it is the same way I use my context clues to understand Coney Island or what a bodega was, or the Verrazano 
Brit or all these other very New York specific terms that I grew up reading and consuming and didn't have explained to me. And so I'm bringing, I'm bringing it up to say I treat, you know, language and, and blackness and race um, very often the same way where I'm telling a story and I'm just telling a story. I'm not telling a story to white people. And I know white people are going to read it, and I, I want white people to read it. I want everyone about my book, really. But this isn't a story that I'm telling to them. This isn't a story that I'm telling for them. I'm telling it for me first, then I'm telling it for us. And then once you get past that, then yeah, I want people to bat a book. I want people to be entertained, to engage with it. And so, yeah, I, I want people who appreciate essays and appreciate humor appreciate cultural or anthropological satire or whatever you want to call what I do. And so that's the next level. Um, but yeah, the primary base audience for everything I do is me. The, um, the, the, part, the part about hiding things in a book, um, I actually set that up on purpose. Uh, I, read it, I read it actually on uh, medium.com. Uh, do, do you read that website? So, I've been on medium, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. So the author of that, of that article said um, that whoever says that, obviously it's not one of us, it's um, being told from one side of perspective. And then they were saying that like, it's important that we understand that we tell our own narrative. So like yourself, we have our own satirists and humorists that kind of tell that black experience from where we're coming from. Because if we're just reading it from someone else about our experience, it's always going to come off like, well, they don't read anyway, so we can describe them as opposed to uh, talk, from, talk from our own view. And then like, he went on to say, like, if the book only tells stories from the perspective of his story, where black people are absent or serve like subordinate positions, then can you blame us for not wanting to read that book? Mm. When I say that book, I mean books, period. Yeah. Yeah, and like, like, how do we popularize that theme again, showing that this is a safe book, this is for us? Well, I mean, if you if you if you just look at the data, the, the population of people who read the most, who buy the most books, are black women in America. Like that, black women outpace everyone mm. when it comes to buying books, when it comes to reading books, when it comes to talking about books, and even though the the stereotypical like bulk consumer is like this white woman or white man or whatever it is black women who do that and so just that just just looking at the data just looking at the, the facts negates the you know that that saying that racist you know saying and yeah we i mean it i it feels ridiculous to you know, I know Kanye joked on, 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 on new slaves that niggas don't read, but niggas do read. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've been reading. I mean, we, we died. We were killed because we wanted to learn how to read. We're reading, exactly. You know, education has always been, you know, people talk about, you know, financial literacy and financial independence, which is, you know, it's, if, that's your, if that is your, um, your gospel, then more power to you. But I, I've, been the, I've always believed that education that just learning and, and being worldly and, and just having perspective and developing empathy and compassion, those are the things that if you want to be a fuller, if you want to be the best possible person, and if you want to be truly free, 
those are the things that we need to to go towards. And and again, that's the thing that we've realized forever. Because again, we had, we died, we used to read when reading was punishable by death. Literacy was punishable by death, and we were still like we have this isn't even our language. No. And we're, you know, we're still reading, we're still learning how to write, we're still building our own schools. And and again, if anyone even just just to let you know how serious that is. You know, just think of how serious white people are about schools, about moving a certain neighborhood. Like the reason why they live in certain neighborhoods, the reason why, you know, they were so opposed to integration was because of schools. Yeah. Was because of them putting a value, a misplaced value, a racist value, thinking that we would kind of, you know, cheapen or invade or infest our education. But it's still, it was still about education. And, and we value education too. And, and again, any suggestion that we don't. And the thing is, you know, one thing that I loved about The Wire, particularly season four of The Wire, is that it showed that kids, all kids, are thirsty to be educated. Yeah. It's just, you just have to make sure which education they're getting. You know, are they getting the school education, the book education, or are they getting the street education? Or, or you know, maybe you're getting both. Yeah. But, but, the, but to act like we are, are averse to knowledge, are averse to learning, that is, that is ridiculous. Because, again, we, it's in our DNA. It's in our, it's in our genes, you know, where we fought for the right. To, we, we literally fought and died for the right to learn. Feeling chills as he said that because like it's so deep like you know um, it literally was illegal and then consider consider the other way why was it illegal because white people understood that if black people couldn't mm -hmm. read and understand them we could easily catch up and outpace them yeah so like obviously that would be the most uh, dangerous thing even even having a slave with a sharp implement a sharp tool out in the field they weren't scared of that. No, to be able to read is more dangerous than any weapon. So that's 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 a very very telling, and I hope like everyone understands like how like you know how deep that is. So like yeah, wh whoever 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 made up that farce of a line because I said it like out of like to provoke a thought. Yeah. Like whoever made that up is definitely trying to demean our experience. Mm -hmm. and, and even you see now, I mean, you know, people who you know who have been incarcerated, um, who are having books sent to them or who are petitioning governors and ward or whatever to have libraries built right. in, in, in the prisons. So it, it just because someone may have gone a certain way legally doesn't mean that they're not interested in education too, not interested in reading. Now, sometimes, you know, they're, they're might, might be reading the wrong books, but they're still reading. <laughs> so the, you know, the reading part is there. And then once you get to the reading part, then it's like, oh, well, here's, here's some, some books, some different books that you can maybe read. See, I've, see, I've seen your, uh, you know, some of your books. Um, you know, uh, you posted them a couple times. And do you have the book, uh, a Langston Hughes book, the, the Ways of White Folks? I don't have it, but I read it. I read it um, years ago. 
Yeah. The reason I ask is because I can, I want to, I want a Damon Young 2020 version of that. Like, okay. Your writing style, your, your brilliance to something like that. Because if you, I'm not sure how long ago you read it, but um, I even brought it over here. I, you know, there's a lot of books I have back home, but I brought, I brought some here. And um, what, how he wrote that was, I think I had to put it down a couple times. Mm-hmm. But I think if you translate it in your way of writing, it would be pretty interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it might be it might be easier to consume the way you know the way you write because I would take I'm just gonna take that comparison to Langston Hughes. I'm gonna put it I'm gonna put it in my pocket. Yeah. I'm gonna keep it. Thank you. I haven't heard that one before. I appreciate it. Even it wasn't you 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 didn't compare it. You put it in the same sentence, but I heard a comparison. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna disabler that, and that's gonna be my takeaway for today from this. Thank yeah, run, run, run with that, bro. That's a that's, so, a, that's a that's a huge props right there. And uh, consider consider that theme. Whereas in music, we're very used to producers taking an old school track and remixing it. Right? Why don't authors do that? You know, as well, take like old books um, and remix the theme, and then make it like for like modern day, so that like you know people reading it don't even don't even they're like oh like this is a new idea. However, I see. That's exactly what I see in Dame yeah. writing something like that. Because, you well, know, you, you, um, you kind of described Toni Morrison. Now, here I go throwing another one out, right? Um, when, you, when you were talking about, I was thinking about FUBU for some reason. Instead of for us, by us, it's, like, it's um, for everybody, by us, right? So, you know, you were saying you want white people to read your books, blah, 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 but it's coming from here. And I'm not going to explain and walk you, walk you to it walk you through it. So Toni Morrison, when she was, uh, I think it was the uh, Charlie, what was his name? That interview? Charlie Rose. Charlie, Charlie Rose. Rose. Yeah, the Charlie mm-hmm. Rose interview, she said, just read my books. You know, I'm not going to explain to you and I'm not going to walk you through it and hold your hand and, you know, just read my books. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. Figure it out. So. Yeah, I mean, again, Langston and now Toni, Toni Morrison, I mean, I, again, you, you, if you want to just keep throwing names out there and, and, and putting my name in the same sentence, you go ahead. I'll just, I'll just sit here and listen and consume and receive all of this. Right. But, um, but to the question about, I guess, the remix, and I, I, think, I think with writing, it's a little different. And I'm going to even bring rap music into this because rap music is very, like, the writing of the music is, you know, the essential part of it. Um, whereas with, with other songs that are sung, it's the, the words matter, but also like the instrumentation of the voice, yeah. you know. And so how um, I'll Always Love You, you know, it's a Dolly Parton song, but then Whitney Houston sung it. And it's a, two completely different songs. Yeah. And, and so with writing, with a writing specific thing, you don't necessarily want to recreate someone else's thing. Um, so it's not this, it's, not, it's a different context as like a cover. Because again, a cover, you're putting your own spin on it, but you're kind of using the same words, but the words are part of it, but they're not the main thing. But with writing and also with rap, and this is why you don't see those sorts of covers with rap music, because it's like, what, why are you, 
just write your own rhyme. Why are you, you know, you might, like Jay-Z always did this, where he was bringing like certain biggie lines into his work, but he's not taking a whole song. Right. Well, they you call know. that biting anyway, if you did that, right? Yeah, we call that, you know, call that biting, call that cheating, plagiarizing, and whatever. And, and so, but I, I, I get what you're saying about, about reading a work and, and maybe writing a contemporary take, you know, with the same kind of subject matter. Um, yeah. and, that's, and, and, and the thing is, I mean, that's what we're all doing anyway. I mean, because there's nothing... We try to be original, but my my writing is a is a is a fusion of a bunch of different styles. Mm-hmm. And then whatever I bring to the table. I mean, you mentioned Toni Morrison. I mean, she. I think that she is the greatest American writer ever. Um, yeah. And so, the Bluest Eye is my favorite book and probably the most influential book in terms of my work. And so, I just the way that she commands language and punctuation and and rhythm. I, I try to incorporate that in my work. I mean, there are other authors who I've read, you know, in, in the 40 year, 41 years I've been on earth that, that find their way to my work too. And so everything I'm doing now is just a fusion of things that other people have done and are currently doing. Let me be clear. The ways of white folks would be the title or somewhat the title, but it would be along that line of your Mm-hmm. Your current, relevant, time-stamped—you know what I mean? Writing, it wouldn't be a remake or a redo or a remix. <laughs> but, uh, but there—I think there needs to be in this day and age, uh, and maybe we even we can segue because the title of the show is "What's Going On." We even ha- we haven't even hit that yet. Um, but this day and age, I think the ways of white folks, there needs to be one written. There needs to be one written. Well, the, okay. even, even, that, even that title is a bit about what's going on, understanding right. the ways of white folks, which is why things are how they are and things are erupting because like, we're not being honest with ourselves and they're not being honest with themselves. Exactly. And, 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 and like, you know, to that point, um, you know, Damon, you know, like it's been said, uh, uh, an artist's job is to mimic the times. How, how do you feel responsible as an author, as a satirist to be, speaking about what's happening right now? So I don't, I don't think that an artist's job is to mimic the times. I, I think that an artist's job is to tell the truth. Um, and the truth comes out whichever way you want it to come out. The truth could be in, in short story and, and in the themes and the, the, the underlying, you know, the underlying arcs and, you know, the, the lower frequencies that are, that, are, that are built into that story. You know, the truth could be your own assessment of what's happening, you know, and your own, like, understanding and how it relates to what's happening inside of you. You know, the truth, your truth could just, could also just literally be a chronicle, a chronicle at a time, where you're creating a thing that captures what's happening in a moment, and it's this thing that exists you know, as part of like the historical record where you want to create this thing that people will be able to come back to 20, 30, 50 years from now and be like, okay, this is what, this is exactly what was happening during that time. And so, yeah, there, there are different ways to chronicle truth, but I believe that, you know, and, and you could tell the truth through lies. 
you know, you can tell the truth. You could tell you could tell the truth by creating stories. You know, you could tell the truth by by satire, by you know, by parody, by by all of that. You know, but I think that that's that's a that's a artist's job is to be as honest as they can be in their work. Can I play devil's advocate to that? Whereas, sure. whereas if we're just um, if we're taking such a creative uh, license with that. And sorry, uh, Nina Simone had said that. I forgot the name. Yeah. Um, so if we're taking such a creative license with that, I think what she meant by saying that uh, was that what's going on is what's going on. You can embellish a bit and stretch it a bit, you know, in terms of like magnifying the situation to get a bigger response. Uh, however, looking at it from their perspective in terms of like the average white American that just says like, Oh, get over it. That was a long time ago, or it's not that big a deal or everyone has a chance. Don't you think that if we're not actually telling it how it is and how serious it is from our perspective, that we're empowering them and emboldening them, emboldening their point of it's not that big a deal. Get over it. Um, well, there are people who's, who's function who, yeah, there are people who are academics or people who are, who are journal, who are journalists, who are trained journalists who, yeah, that is more the function of their job. Um, where they, where they're just, where they're putting what's happening currently into a context, into an historical context, into a social context, into a cultural context, but that's not everyone's job. That's, that's not that's not everyone's job to do that and and also too i i'm 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 gonna keep it a hundred it's not our job to educate white people mm-hmm. like it's our again it's our job to tell the truth and they could come and get the truth but it's not it's not our responsibility to educate them they like all this shit that's happening now white people need to deal with other white people like there's we could protest we could we could march, we could demand, and that's great. And I'm glad that so many of us are out in the streets doing that right now. But white people need to get themselves together. Like this is, you know, the, I remember seeing a quote, seeing an interview that Charlie Rose interviewed with Toni Morrison. And she was basically saying, yeah, white people need to, this is a problem they need to fix. They need to, they need to in those crucibles of whiteness, those, 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 fucking potlucks and those happy hours and clam bakes or whatever they do when they're together. They need to get with each other and figure out how to fix this. Hold like on. Whatever. Like the progressive, liberal, whatever, the people who are with change or people who claim to be sincere about moving us forward, they need to talk to their cousins. Because yeah. we, we, I can't reach their, I can't reach the cousin, right? I can't reach the the the, the white Trump voter who is never going to read this. Is never even if they do read it, it's just going to reinforce how they already feel. But that their cousin can reach them, their 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 brother can reach them, their aunt can reach them, their their homie from high school can reach them, and so Maybe. white people need to, Maybe. but we can't. The, yeah. the point is, we can't. Right. So but if you we can, it's going to be them. Dane, I'm going to yeah. tell you this. I've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, anti-racist white people, basically like the Generation Zs and the, you know, the young people who are out there marching. 
they're failing trying to reach mom and dad and uncles and you know they're not having a lot of luck trying to deprogram and and, and have it's these hard. people unlearn yeah so i'm not sure i have too much faith in that i mean i'm not i'm not talking about faith or hope i'm just talking about what needs to happen if this is going to happen because that again it's not going to be we can't do that no not us we can't do that it has to be them that yeah. hollers at their boys because yeah. we we can't do that okay so 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 i agree i agree with what you said in terms of like it's not our job to educate them however it goes back um to what we brought up earlier about six out of the top 10 best sellers right now on amazon are about the topic of race so even though maybe you didn't write your book particularly for white people to be educated about black people they're picking it up for that purpose and that's them that's on them that's that, that like you know it is what it is yeah. um so pe people people read things for different reasons and um um relate to it for different reasons as well um even even some interpretations that we might get uh you know as as like you know black people from your book you know might be slightly different than what you meant you know etc so like even like being able to talk to an author or it's your book signings people get a lot out of that like that in-person um feedback because that that either justifies what they thought when they're reading it or gives them a different perspective straight from the author themselves well i and so i'm, I'm gonna um i appreciate you saying that and i'm gonna i'm going to I, I, I'm going to rewind a bit, and I, I misspoke because um, so the books at the top, the books I, I know a couple of the books that you're referring to. One is um, you know How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, who's who's a friend, and also um, Let's Talk About Race by I always pronounce her name White Fragility. Um, yeah, and White Fragility also by Robin um, D'Angelo, and so these are books that are written for white people. Those are books that are written with that intent to educate people, particularly white people, about race and about racism. So in that, in that context, yes. If you, sometimes there are people who go out and intend to do this and intend to create work that does that. And, and, and again, these are academics, these are PhDs, these are people whose work is centered on that sort of education. These are educators. Um, my book will, can offer a perspective about certain things, about blackness, about race, about racism, about white people, because white people need to read about white people too. <laughs> white people need to study white people too, and not just white uh, white people in history, but I mean white culture. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but they're not. They're not built for that purpose. Even even though I recognize that it's going to serve that purpose for other people, I don't want to reverse engineer and inject intent where it wasn't. Now, if it happens, that's great, but that wasn't the point of me writing. But I, I, I do. It is true that there are some books out there written by black authors, written by great black authors. I mean, Ibram, I think, won a national book award for Stamp from the beginning. And, um, and so, so yeah, you know, that does exist. We've got a, we've got a, we've got a question just from the chat. Um, we'll comment first and they, uh, the comment says, I'd rather, I'd rather non, -bl non blacks go ahead and read about it 
as opposed to me having to tell them or them keep asking me because it gets draining. Do you, do you, do you, do you kind of feel that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I have a book. Yeah. Hand me my money. Um, yeah, go read my book. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great way to, to start and end the conversation. If you want to read my book and then come back to me. The question part is, um, what are your feelings on the fact that HBCUs have lost funding because white people have taken curriculums to white schools to teach them, resulting in the loss of enrollments? Wow. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a travesty. That's an awful thing. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it 100. I am not as well-versed in like, educational policy and in funding and, and on that side of stuff. So there are people who could speak better than I can about this issue. Um, but, you know, HCBCUs have a viable function in our, you know, in, in our, in, in our culture, in our, in our lives. And the pair of them getting defunded or losing their accreditation, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's, it's terrible. Um, I don't know. I don't know what could be done to reverse that. I mean, there are some, you know, Howard's going to be fine. You know, Spelman, Morehouse, Florida A and M. Those schools are going to be okay, but there are a lot of there are a lot of other smaller HBCUs that just don't have that same sort of support. I mean, my sister went to Cheney. I'm not sure if Cheney still exists, it, or at least if it exists in the same way, if it still is accredited. You know, and that's just one school. There are you know many others that just within the last 10, 15 years have have had that happen to them. That's 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 a terrible thing. That's uh that's interesting because I had an HBCU question all lined up as well. Uh, it's it's a very different than that one, and I'm gonna bring it up later. But I guess I may as well bring it up now since you just said what you said as well. Um, it's not necessarily about deep um, uh, uh, policy things uh, in terms of what do you think about this, but more so like when when uh, when I was reading you know reading up about you and like your style. Um, and when I asked you, who's your audience? The reason why I asked that, because it kind of like reminded me of like Dear White People, like that show. And it kind of reminded me of uh, even way before that, a different world. Whereas it's like, this is safe black commentary that white people will be okay to read and not necessarily like be afraid or like think it's too militant or what have you. Um, with HBCUs, like from the different world perspective, it brought me back to, well, how would Damon feel in terms of, shouldn't they be doing things way before university? It's like, I feel like we hear about HBCUs too late. We have that conversation way too late about, why don't you get educated at a black uh, school? It's like, I'm a, I'm a 17, 18 year old black man or woman. Shouldn't I have been educated about blackness way before HBCU time? Or shouldn't they be talking to um, elementary uh, level, you know, level students like in a like in a blackness kind of you know kind of way? Well, I think I think we have to be careful using we there because I there are a lot of black people who oh yeah you're 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 going to HBCU that that tell their kids when they're two three years old you're going to you're going to Howard mm-hmm. you're going to Hampton you're going to North Carolina A and T and it's there's no debate. Um, my partner with very smart brothers, Panama Jackson, he went to Morehouse. His wife went to Howard. 
and your kids are that like they're like, no, I don't Harvard, Stanford, whatever the fuck. No, you're going to Morehouse. You're going to Spelman. This is just what's going to happen for you. So there are black families, many thousands, millions of black families who have that, you know, who already have that sensibility. And also, you know, I, I think it, you know, for talking like an American context, it also, I think, depends on where you're from. Because I think that that thought is a lot more prevalent in the South. Yeah. Um, because there are a lot more HBCUs, you know, and a lot more prominent HBCUs there. Whereas, you know, in Pennsylvania and New York State and the Mid-Atlantic, you just don't have as many black colleges and, um, and traditional, you know, historically black colleges and universities there. So maybe that conversation doesn't happen as frequently as it does for black people in the South or black people who have parents or grandparents or whatever who went to certain schools but again i think that yeah there are definitely kids who from day one birth are you know they go home in a howard onesie yeah i don't think i don't think my, i don't think my daughter has a choice she's definitely going to go to 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 see you um you know I've, I've i've processed that for a long time i'll say this really quickly if i like, if I had to do it all over again, um, like, ba- basketball is the reason why I went to Kenesha College. Um, yeah, this was my question. What do you say? That was my question. Keep going. I was going to ask yeah, you. Yeah, I, I have no connection to that school. Like, I went back there for the first time in 20 years last year to give a book talk. They invited me as part of my book tour. But I have, like, when I see, you know, all my boys who – who all my homies who went to HBCUs and how excited they get about homecoming and how connected they still are with the people they went to school with. Yeah. I, I get a bit of FOMO with yeah. that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I wish, I wish I had that. I wish I had that experience. And for me, college was just a place that I went. And yeah. then when I was done with it, I left and I came back home. Like I, I have no connection to Kenesha's other than a degree and like some Facebook friends. Right. Really, and and so that's the sort of thing that 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 seems to be developed more for us in an HBCU context. Yeah, that's the thing that I um that that I kind of envy. Um, definitely envy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you live over here, this is HBCU world. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, this is fraternities and sororities and everything, and it's it's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah, we we actually uh, our podcast Global Brothers. We covered the uh, what is it called? I don't want to say inauguration, but the chapter of of the Qs Omega Sun Five. Uh-huh. Yeah, we did a show and we covered them. Uh, they they have a chapter over here, which is which is wonderful. But all the uh, sororities, fraternities over here, it's a beautiful thing. And um, so, but yeah, the one thing I was was jumping in, and I was going to tell you is, I'm sure you know in our travels. When we would, I don't know if you remember us uh, working the basketball camp out at Penn State. Remember, it was like a whole I remember, maybe, yeah. maybe even two summers. We were like back and forth, and it was a 45-minute drive both ways. I'm sure from Brian Carroll to me to you or whoever, we always talked about, you know, and Brian went, you know, Brian went to school down in Baltimore, so I was even envious of that, you know, the <laughs> fact that he was down near Coppin mm-hmm. State and, you know, all those other schools. Um, I never left Pittsburgh, you know, and then you went to Buffalo. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was, there was always a uh, sort of an envy 
and mm-hmm. uh, I feel it. I feel it over here, living over here. I wanted to ask you this, Dame, and I just you know, uh, why George Floyd? Why why fifty states? Why eighteen, nineteen countries? Why this specific moment? I think I have an idea, but I want to know your thoughts. Why this outrage? Why these, whether the fake, real, Antifa? Why are these white allies? What is going on now? What? What's I, 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 my my theory is that um, it's just a critical mass of shit happening all at the same time. I mean, you know, the coronavirus. That's you know. And that, that, the corona, like, this is, you know, I'll get back to your answer to the, to the question, but that shit is still my number one concern. Yeah. Like, that shit is, like, when I see people out in the streets together, I'm like, holy shit, this is great. Yes, fight the power, defund the police, but also I'm thinking, holy shit. We've been told for the last three, four months not to gather, mm-hmm. not to be in groups. That when you're closely in close contact like that, that masks don't really matter all like that. But and, and so I'm I'm watching that and I'm like I'm scared to death. Not of like people being brutalized by police, but of people passing that virus to each other and bringing it back to the to their to their communities where we're out protesting and fighting, you know, to prevent black death. But in doing that, we're bringing death back home, and it's it's. I just wrote a thing about this and I'm trying to get my, my thoughts together. It's just, it's one of those things where America, every choice is booby trapped. Yeah. Where even if you make this choice to go out and fight and do these things, there's the other thing. There's the, we're in the fucking middle of a global pandemic right now. And so do you flatten the curve and, but keep the status quo? Or do you go out and protest and fight, but make yourself more vulnerable to this thing that we're already hyper vulnerable to? So that's I, I don't I don't have an answer there. But but to get back to your question, um, the reason why this is such a major thing is coronavirus and people just on edge, people who I think just can't ignore. It, it, it's just too difficult to ignore. The, the danger and the violence and the brutality of white supremacy right now. And, and also the ubiquity of, of people having cameras and, and all this footage of, of things happening, the footage of George Floyd dying. I still haven't watched that, but I've seen screenshots. And even, that, even the way that happened, we're, okay, we, we've seen people get shot and a shooting is dispassionate. It's brutal. It kills you. But there's a certain level of there's a certain level of brutality with dying that way. A nine minute long chokehold that I think just just made just just fucking devastated people. Right. And so there's that there's the coronavirus. There's the fact that so many people are unemployed right now. I think the joblessness rate is like 15 or 16 percent we're, we're almost at like great depression levels right now um there's just all, all of the stuff that has happened in america that's leading up to this to this thing yeah. and, and i think people are just people are just 
on edge. And, and this was, um, it wasn't just a catalyst, it was a cataclysm with George Floyd, you know, with what happened with, with his murder. And, and yeah, so this doesn't, I don't, I don't feel differently about him than I felt about Trayvon, than I felt about Sandra Bland, than I felt about Antoine Rose. Like it's just, desensitized isn't, isn't the word because that suggests like a minimization of feeling. It's more sensory overload, where it's just, just so much. What I feel differently about now is the fact that white people's, white people's like need to preserve the status of whiteness in America led to them electing this person. Hmm. And this person, now coronavirus went around the world and was going to get to America regardless, but the scale of which we've been affected by it is because this motherfucker is completely unfit for office. Right. And he's only in office because of racism. Like that was his, that was his entire platform. That was his entire political prominence. I mean, the only reason he was even a political figure was because of birthing, because of the birther, you know, controversy. And, and so considering that and, and that white supremacy caused a fucking pandemic, that's, that's the thing that, that like really just fucks with me, you know, in, in, in the police brutality thing and the, in the, and, and all of that, all of that matters too. Um, but I want to be careful with how I say this. I, I am, we've seen that before. We've seen what happened to George Floyd before. Yeah. And I think what's different now is recognizing that, holy shit, this isn't just like a white supremacy can end the world. This isn't just a thing that is going to fuck with your day to day. This is the thing that, if it continues, could end us as a, as a, as a fucking human race. And I, and I think that point, and that's the point that, that, um, tendency coast bills to and in the world between the world and me that's the point that he's building to that this isn't just like an American thing that you know that we have to contend with this isn't just like a racism or police brutality a microaggression thing this is a thing that could end us if we allow it to continue to go and continue to grow and so I think that that, that feeling even though people might not articulate it I think that people are starting to kind of realize that, but you know, this should, we can't, we, we just can't, we can't. And, and white people are realizing that, you know, white supremacy hurts them too. Yeah. You know, as I said in the beginning, it, it's not just a thing that, that fucks with black people. It's a thing that, you know, I wrote a piece yesterday um, and the title was, you know, the police would rather kill white people than stop killing black people. And we've seen that. We've seen elderly white men getting pushed and shoved and cracking their heads open. We've seen this white woman who's an author who I was a fan of her work. She got her eye shot out by a rubber bullet. Like, they don't give a fuck about you. They don't give... White supremacy matters more than white lives, which is a crazy thing 
to actually say, but the, but the, but the, I don't know, but the concept and just the, the structure and the, and the, and the power of white supremacy supersedes individual white lives too. And, and I think white people, some white people are, are starting to wake up to that fact as well. And so with all of that shit happening, now you have what's happening, happening. I said it was happening like eight times in that sentence. Yeah, I, I've always said that there's uh, white sacrifices and um, they'll, they'll do anything to maintain. They'll do anything to have an edge to, to you know, um, you know, we're from Pittsburgh and I've seen them do anything to get Steeler tickets, you know? Like, <laughs> if, they're, if, they're, if their white daughter, you know, brings home Heinz Ward or Jerome Bettis, they're like, all right, they'll sacrifice their daughter to get, you know, season tickets. I mean, the whole point of Get Out, Get Out, I mean, that was one of the, like, the, the subplots is that this family was pimping their daughter out yeah. for, for years to bring black people, black men home to, you know, to do that stuff to them. And, and there were, like, 15, 20 of them that, and they were fine with it. Yep, yep. So. Wow, that, that's that's a, that's actually a subplot that I um, I peeped it, but I didn't peep it. But now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a question from uh, from from uh, the room. They say, "Would you consider yourself a feminist, and how do you weigh in on the gender warmongering in the black community?" Mm, good question. Um, I do, um, and I want to say that. It's a complicated answer because I um, I believe okay. So there's a I saw another I could see a little, a little bit of the chats like I could see the questions when they when they're asked and then they disappear from my screen. And I saw a question um, pop up about 15 minutes ago about what books would I recommend to young black men. And all of the books that I would recommend are written by black women by black feminists, by, by, by black queer people, by black, you know, whatever, because I think that it, we need to, I think that education needs to start earlier, you know, in terms of developing that perspective, developing that empathy, developing, you know, recognizing that privilege actually does exist, you know, and so, if I had, if there was like a 15 year old brother who, who, you know, approached me about what to read, I'm going to recommend Imani Perry. I'm going to recommend Brittany Cooper. I'm going to recommend Toni Morrison. I'm going to recommend Sarah Bloom. I'm going to yeah. recommend, you know, um, Bell Hawks. Um, maybe Bell a little bit later because Bell's a little intense. Um, <laughs> you need to, you need to build up, you need to build up the Bell. Um, maybe Samantha Irby. Um, maybe, you know, all, all, all types of, you know, black women, uh, Bossy Ekby, uh, Nafisa Thompson Spears, who are writing and creating and examining, you know, in a way that, to be, to be honest, surpasses the stuff that we're doing. It does. You know, and I would, I would tell any young brother that, you know, if you really want to understand the world, if you really want to be a better person, you need to, you need to consume this first 
you know, don't just spend your time reading books written by black men to other black men. No, read this, read these feminist texts, because the thing is, and I think there's a misnomer, you know, and, and I equate it to how white people sometimes feel about racism and white supremacy, where they believe that if, if we end white supremacy, then that means it's going to be black supremacy. And no, we just want equality. We just want equity. We don't want to, well, most of us don't want to subjugate. I don't want to oppress. I just want to be free. I want and I'm kidding. And I, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think that a misnomer that a lot of us, a lot of brothers, and, and some black women, but a lot of brothers have with the concept of feminism is that they think that it means that you hate men. They think that it means that women want to don't don't have a use for men or want to kill men or want to want to replace men on a certain social hierarchy. And what all it's asking is is for freedom. Is for just the ability to move and to exist and to and to be free in a way that you know women aren't able to be free. You know, and it's you know, just just getting into a concept of privilege, you know. Um, yes, I'm, I'm black, black in America. And so white people in America have privilege. It doesn't mean that black people can't survive or thrive or succeed or whatever. It just means that for there are less obstacles in my way. There are less obstacles in their way than there are in mine. That, that's, that's all it means. Yeah. It's like... You're running a race. I'm running a race with hurdles. Mm -hmm. I might so, still be faster than you. I might still win the race, but I have to jump these hurdles too. Right. And and that's kind of how privilege works. And I, I think that you know it, it it can be difficult for young brothers and for older brothers sometimes to understand that women, black women, face the same racism that we do. They face the same oppression that we do, but then you have the sexism and the misogyny and the sexual violence and the domestic violence on top of that. Constantly. Yeah. And, and, and they, they get it before they're thinking about sex. Like, yeah. they, they get it when they're not even developed. I mean, and it, it, it's so, like, it's so entrenched in, in, some, in, in culture sometimes that a lot of us, you know, I mean, we, we were, we taught at Wilkinsburg. We, yeah. we knew that there were like grown men that were dating some of the, some of the kids there. Yeah. Yeah. We knew that. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and patriarchy is so fucked up where you, you know, if you're not, if you're not hit to the game, you look at a situation like that and you're like, oh, well, she just likes older guys and you're not, you're not thinking of that guy as a predator. Mm -hmm. You're thinking, oh, this 15-year-old is fast. And you're not thinking, oh, this 25-year-old is a fucking criminal for doing this. Right. You know, and, and, and that's just, you know, that's just one aspect, you know, of, you know, this, this entire, you know, culture. It's an atmospheric thing. And, you know, I, I think that any... Any effort to dismantle white supremacy, to dismantle racism, is incomplete 
if it doesn't also include patriarchy, if it doesn't also recognize privilege. Because again, what is the point of fighting if we're only fighting for us? And you know, and, and to keep it a hundred too, I mean, we're talking about George Floyd. Right now, George Floyd has been again a catalyst for this 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 uprising that is happening around the world. But I think like two weeks before George Floyd was murdered, there was a woman, Breonna Taylor, who was shot to death in her bed. Um, no charges have been brought against the people responsible for that. And her death did not receive the same sort of attention. Now, there are extenuating circumstances for that. It wasn't televised. I mean, it wasn't captured on camera. So that, that definitely matters. Very free of mobilization that happens when this happens to us. And that same mobilization doesn't happen when it happens to black women, the black trans people, to people who are not straight black men. Mm -hmm. Let me push that, that, that is, that it has been the reality. Right, and it needs to get better. Let me, let me push a little bit. I agree 100%. Um, when Sandra Bland gets pulled out of her car and ends up dead on a routine traffic stop for a turn signal, or the Brianna case, uh, or Rakia Boyd, or, you know, so many. Where, when we talk like intersectionality, you know, uh, minority group coalitions and things like that, where are they? Where, where's the women's, the feminist movement, you know, are, are they, because are they, I might be messing it. Okay, I, they might not be on my timeline or not might be in my sphere. Are they present for sent for black women, the feminists? Yeah, yeah, they're they're the ones who are at the front lines saying, "Hey, this is fucked up. This is they're they're the ones." I mean, if you look at all these movements, if you look at the people who are, you know, who are leading the charges, who are who are who are leading the who are who are the most radical, who are the most unfortunately dependable. For these sorts of uprising, it's been black women, mm -hmm. you know, who were doing organizing, who were on the ground floor. And again, that's not to minimize what black men are bringing to this too. Mm -hmm. But but it's it's almost like we become like the the quote unquote figurehead, you know. And and I guess the frustration, and I'm I'm speaking for women that I've talked to about this, is that. If something like this were to happen to me or you, mm -hmm. we know that there are going to be thousands of black women that are going to be out there, that are going to be picketing, that are going to be protesting, that are going to be whatever. And, and but if something like this happens to one of them, is that going to be reciprocated? It hasn't been so far. So a piece that rocked a lot of us. Okay. Um, and it was a it was a brilliant piece, and if anybody took the chance to read it, they would get it right. Um, straight black men or the white people for a black people, mm -hmm. and my DM, my instant messenger went crazy, right? And I was responding by saying, "Yeah, I get it. It kind of shook me up as well, but read it." Um, a lot of us were really upset that we were compared to, now, I didn't have the same feelings as a lot of people because a lot of people didn't read it, 
but a lot of people were really upset with being compared to not just our oppressor, but historically, you know, the trauma, the pain, and everything that we've been involved with, it was really, really, um, I know for me personally, it rocked us. Um, what, how, that, how much did that uh, have an effect on you, the fact that some people missed it? They missed the point. I mean, I really work. And my, the reason why, because I know you, I was upset because I said, damn, Dane, not only can you scroll through your timeline and you know Brian Carroll and you know Lamont Rucker and you know whomever, that, you know, there's a lot of people out here championing women who definitely needs to read it and what I, whatnot. But there's black women who is like, yup, they ain't shit. And they ain't read the article either. You know what I mean? And I was like, I mean, damn, that might have divided us. The piece was an articulation, I guess, was a, was a succinct, like the title was a succinct articulation of what I just been, of, I guess what I've just been saying for like the last 10 minutes. Um, and like all analogies, you know, analogies aren't perfect. Like, if, like for instance, if I were to say, Keith is the Michael Jordan of waffle making. What would that mean? That would mean that you are the best waffle maker. That, that, that doesn't mean that you are literally Michael Jordan making waffles. It just means that you are good at making waffles. Right. And so the analogy was not saying that black men are white men or anything like that, but that if you look, just look at the way status and privilege works, that within our community, we hold a certain privilege. And that's, that's really all the piece was saying. And, um, well, hold on, real quick. But you had to read the piece. You had to read the piece. You had to read the piece. And I, I, there, and it's, it's funny that there are people who are still who still hit me up on Twitter angry about that. And I'm like, yo, this this piece is three years old now, and there are <laughs> <laughs> like I I've written two thousand things since then. Um, and I the only time I think about it and are angry about it. Um, and, and I could, the thing is I can take that, yeah. you know, I, I know that if you do public writing for a living and if people disagree with a thing and particularly a heated topic like that, they're going to come at you. And I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. My, what I'm more upset about is that I'm not, not upset that people are upset with me. I'm upset that these people who are upset with me yes. exist in the world and take that sensibility and take that mindset and have to interact with people you know like if you are so if if you get that upset with me about this piece how are you treating the people in your life it's the same the thing that's going on right now right with white supremacy yeah but and they, so it, i could you know i i've had to develop kind of an elephant skin um with doing what i do for a living and so what people say about me, I, I've heard it all, you know, and, I get, and I'm in a privileged position where I don't, you know, I could kind of do what I want in terms of writing, in terms of publishing. So I could take, I could take that. Um, and there are women who have said, it, it's funny because there are scholars, feminist scholars, women, whatever, who have said similar things. 
and on one hand are kind of felt a certain way that I got all this attention for saying the thing they've been saying for, for years. But on the other hand, we're like, well, I appreciate you saying that because maybe a man saying it might make other men listen. And you could take the heat instead of us taking the heat. Maybe you could take the heat for this for a little bit. Yeah. And you can fine with that. Right. So was it divisive with, the, with those women? I mean, were they, you know, did they think that, you know, I mean, you should have been applauded. Like I said, the, the piece, if read, was brilliant. But I was upset, extremely upset, because I was like, damn, I've been deprogramming, me personally, right? And that's typical, right, for us to be individual and not look at the big picture. But there was a lot of us in the community who, were, who have been working hard as hell to peel off layers and to read that and go, come on, bro. Like, we, we've been past that. Like, we're married and this, and we're, you know, educators and educated, and, you know, and to read that, it, you know, once again, just a title. I think that, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I understand that. I do. Um, and I think the, the best way to, to answer that is that you have to kind of take yourself out of that. You have to take your ego out of it. And it's the same thing that we tell white people, that we tell white allies or white progressives or whatever when we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about racism, we talk about white people, we talk about anti-racism. We're like, you know what? Yes, you're doing the work, and that's great, but you're also still white. And so, yes, continue to do the work. Don't take this personally, but also maybe... There are certain things in your life that you certain things that you still have to extract, certain things that you still have to think about. And I'm, I'm, I was very careful and very intentional when I wrote that, not to say y'all. I I wasn't saying y'all. I was saying us because I don't absolve myself from any of this. I'm just articulating a thing, but I am just as guilty. What are you working on now? So like pretty much like I had like a combined question and you could break right. down each like bit of it. So uh, like I've, I've seen whereas people are diversifying, pivoting, as they say, I'm sure that's like a buzzword now that you're tired of hearing as well. But people are pivoting quite a bit, whereas uh, from university lecturing, you know, like audio books or ebooks, um, working on another book, you know, like which one of you, which one of these things are you involved in? Um, so I'll answer the last part first. Um, my book is available in all functions. Um, so there's a, you can go to audible.com and get the book. I actually read the book. I, so you're going to hear my voice when, you know, if you were to do that, it's any way you could buy a book, my book is available. Um, ebook, audio, physical copy, boom. But, um, yeah, right now I'm working on two other books. Um, I'm writing a YA book. Um, and this is my first time writing fiction. So I'm, I'm doing that right now. Um, my contract with HarperCollins is for two books, two nonfiction books. So when I'm done with the YA book, I'm going to start writing another like nonfiction essay book. Um, I'm working on a script right now um, for the thing that I can't mention <laughs> yet. Um, I, um, I'm still writing for Very Smart Brothers. I'm still um, writing for GQ. 
also been writing now for the New York Times, so I'm still writing essays. Um, so I'm I'm always writing, and I, and I know that there there are people who kind of use writing or think of writing as a conduit to do something else. Like, okay, I'm going to have this book, and then I'm going to use the popularity of this book to become like a pundit, to be on MSNBC or to be an anchor. Or, or be on TV. Um, those things are great when they happen, if they happen. But writing is my thing. Like I want to continue to write. I want to continue to just get better at this. Um, there's also a podcast, um, Crooked Media um, podcast company in LA um, was going to build a podcast around me, and that actually got postponed because of coronavirus and and all that. It was actually supposed to launch uh, last month, but they had to push it back because everything is just crazy. So, um, so, yeah, those are, that's what I have going on. You got your plate full even in this time, man. I'm uh, just trying to, stay, trying to stay busy, man. I, I still got that, you know, that PTBD, that post-traumatic brokenness disorder, man, where I'm like, I gotta, I can't rest, I gotta, I gotta stay working. Yeah, I was gonna tell you earlier, that doesn't go away, bro. I mean, I know, you know, I'm, I'm a few years older than you, but that's, it does not go away. And, you know, um, you know who really has it? I mean, you know, they're the same as we are, but millionaire athletes, man, millionaire guys out of poverty, they have it big time. You know, they go through I, I imagine. I mean, because I imagine that that whiplash is even greater to come from having no money and then all of a sudden having millions. Yeah. Like that, I, I, I and, and being 19, yeah, like I I got my little bit of money at thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Like I was already a grown ass man, you know, when my circumstances shifted the way they did. I can't imagine getting ten times more than that at nineteen. Yeah, the pressure. I, I just, that's in, that's in, that's unfathomable. Yeah, um, you remember you remember years ago they put out that uh, list. I think it was even a show called Broke. And they listed all the players, the NFL and NBA players that yeah. were broke or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I got from that, and, you know, there was a lot of people talking about it, debating is when a, let's say Tom Brady goes to the NFL and he becomes a rich, you know, Super Bowl Hall of Fame athlete. I know white rich people and they don't have to take care of anybody. Like their brother still lives in his prefab home and he's doing okay, right? Mm-hmm. But when DeWan Blair or an NBA player comes out of something, hit the pressure on him, he has to take care of a lot of people. He yeah. can't just go and live and do what he's going to do and maybe help somebody out. He's actually <laughs> had a lot of people. That's where black folks, we get... We, we get... Uh, our money sucked dry very, very quickly. I, it reminds me, um, Chris Rock, I don't know if he said this in a skit or he said this in an interview, and he was talking about his neighborhood and how his neighbors, like Mary J. Blige is one of his neighbors, and like Patrick Ewing and a white dentist. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he was like, you know, you know how many, you know how rich a black dentist would have to be to be in this neighborhood? Exactly. Like, you know how many teeth you would have to pull mm-hmm. to be a black dentist, to be in this same neighborhood, but a white dentist could build that wealth and have that wealth surrounding him and is able to exist in the same space 
as these multi-millionaire black people because he has just, he's just ensconced in that sort of wealth instead of being like this singular figure who has to make all, you know, this tremendous amount of money just to be able to exist in that same space. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reality for us in America where even if, you know, there, yeah, there are some of us who, who come from wealth or who, you know, have an upper middle class background and family or whatever, you know, those Jack and Jill ass niggas, but most of us aren't that. Most of us, the majority of us aren't that at all. And, you know, when that happens, then yeah, we gotta, we gotta take care of our people. Yeah. Or, or, or just be dissed by them. Like, you know, be shunned. Or, or that, yeah. You know, and I, I, and the thing is, I would rather they, I, I, I'm glad that I'm in that position where I can do that because I would rather them get it from me than have to go to Money Mart or have to, you know, have some sort of predatory loan situation happening. So I would, I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm in the position where I can help. Can't help too much, but I'll, I'll, do, I'll do what I can. What you talked about with Chris Rock was uh, it was a show called uh, Russell Simmons' Blacklist. Uh, that's what uh, what he said that on. Well, thank, again, thank you for having me on. This was this was a lot of fun. You know, great conversation. Um, thank you, thank you, Marlon. It was great meeting you. Um, I appreciate your questions and everyone who turned in, who tuned in to. I don't know what time it is. Or I, I guess people are all over the world. Global, you know, got Luxembourg. Global brothers, global brothers, man, global. Yeah, so wherever you are in your part of the world, thank you for coming out and um and being here. You know, okay. this is great. And you know, maybe I'll be back. Hey, let us know let us know your um let us know your social media handles and like, you know, where they can get the book and like all that good stuff about uh, you know, following up with your um, um, Yeah, my book, uh, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker is available wherever books are sold. Um so you can get it from Amazon, but I would I would prefer that you got it from like a a local black bookstore, if you could, like Uncle Bobby's in D.C., Source Booksellers in Detroit. Um, if you can't do a local black store, you could do one of the independent stores, City of Asylum in Pittsburgh. Um, there, there's so many. You can also do Barnes & Noble, too. Um, and you can follow me at Damon Young VSB on IG, um, on Facebook, oh, on Twitter. I'm also Damon Young VSB, and also I tweet from Very Smart Bros, too. So, um, so yeah. Mahogany Books in D.C. too. Mahogany Books in D.C. is a, is another Mahogany. Yeah, they they've been awesome. They're they're another great bookstore. All right, thanks everybody for tuning in. As we always say at this time, live global and prosper. Peace. 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 Check us out on YouTube, Global Brothers Podcast, and please subscribe and share and you know continue to support you know good yeah. content. Thanks everybody. Mr. Worldwide. <laughs>